All right, guys, uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 18. And we've got to move quickly today because I've got to cover a lot of ground in a fairly short amount of time. So John chapter 18. And today we are covering uh, two really, really huge events, the, uh, the, the trial of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus. And I know we normally discuss crucifixion, resurrection at Easter time, but um, it's okay. You guys can handle this, right? Uh, so look at John chapter 18. And uh, how many of you all have ever attended a trial before? You've seen a trial in person. I'm not asking if you've been on trial. Just asking if you've attended a trial, you've seen a trial. So really only a couple of you have been to a trial. Okay, so um, uh, a while back, uh, I, ma- I made a comment about a month ago. We had a, a former student that used to go here. Um, you guys know the story. Many of you know the story. If you don't, I'll kind of bring up to speed. But uh, Kevin Rogers, one of our former students, he was uh, involved in an incident. Um, he was actually found not guilty, but um, he was involved in a racing incident that led to an accident that he was not actually in the accident, but the guy he was racing against was. And then that accident led to um, the death of, a, of, a, of an infant and also um, the mother to miscarry her pregnancy that she had um, at the time of the accident. So a really tragic situation. And um, I, I went to the trial for part of it, at least. Uh, jury selection also for the first day of the trial, just to kind of give support to Kevin and his family as they walk through this really difficult time. And um, I was blown away by one thing as I watched this jury get selected and the whole process play out for a day and a half, and it's this. It's amazing how much effort is put into, um, it by our government, to make sure there's a fair trial, to make sure that something is fair. It's, a, it's, it's amazing how much time and effort's put into that, how much money's put into that. Um, when you see the protocol and all the things they have to go through legally just to make a trial happen, it is mind-blowing how much effort is put into by our government here to make sure someone has a fair and honest trial when they're being tried for a crime. And what's amazing, what stood out to me as I watched that whole process unfold was that Jesus wasn't afforded that right. The, the, the most innocent man, the, the only innocent man who ever walked on this earth um, was not afforded the same rights of the worst criminals in our society. And so look at, at John chapter 8. We're going to see like how this whole, whole thing un, unfolds in John chapter 18. I'm going to summarize for you John 18 uh, verses 1 to 18 first. So they've been in the upper room for a while, and Jesus and his disciples, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane after they leave the upper room. At that point, Jesus is betrayed by Judas, and he's handed over to the Roman guards. This is the part where, where Peter, you know, hacks off the guy's ear, and Jesus, you know, whoa, puts it back on the guy. Um, after his arrest, they take Jesus to the Jewish high priest. At this point, this is when Peter denies Jesus, just like Jesus said that he would before the rooster crowed, that whole, that whole story. So we're picking up now in John chapter 18, verse 19. Look with us in verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 19. It says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So Jesus is saying, it's not like I've been preaching 
behind closed doors. It's not like I've been in some closet somewhere talking about secret things. I've been in front of thousands of people telling about myself and, and the kingdom and my father. And, and you're acting like I've been sort of secretive about this whole thing. And look at the next, uh, next verse, verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now let's think about this for a minute. There is a man there who was created by God, who was created by Jesus, who lifts up his hand and strikes Jesus with the back of his hand. Just, just think about this for a minute. A, a created being, someone created by God, created by Jesus, lifts up his hand and strikes the one who creates him. You know, I have a, a little three-year-old daughter that I've told you guys a lot about. You know Sienna. And, um, and Sienna can get a little bit of an attitude sometimes. And uh, she does this thing now where she will sometimes hit her mom or her dad, not in a, like, real flagrant sense. It's not real obvious, like, bam, you know, it's not like that. But it's, it's like a subtle thing where if I'm talking to her or if I say, hey, we need to come over here and, and do this other thing, and I and pick her up and carry her, it's like this, like, mm, and she'll kind of go, like, mm, like that, like swing her arm and kind of hit me, and I'm going, like, what comes out of me when she does that is I want to sit around and say, look, do you know who I am? I made you, right? Like, don't, do you know, I always appeal to that, like, don't you know who I am? Like, I am your father. You do not hit anyone, but especially not your father, right? You do not do that, right? And so here's the deal, though. Like, Jesus could have easily appealed to that, couldn't he? He could have easily said, hey, don't you know who I am? Like, don't you realize who you just slapped across the face? I made you. I created you. But look at what he says in this, in this passage. He says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? He simply just appeals to, okay, if, if, what, if what you think I said is wrong, then we're in a court of law, supposedly here. <laughs> then prove it and prove it here. But, but why do you strike me? Even Jesus doesn't appeal to the same thing that that I'm often attempted, uh, attempted to appeal to with my, with my own child. You see, Jesus did not get a real trial. He was presumed guilty from, from, the, from, the, from, the, from the word go. In fact, if you or I went out and robbed a bank today and put a bullet in someone's head, not saying you should do this, but if you did that, you would get a more fair trial than Jesus did. In Jewish law, there were several things that you were not allowed to violate in a trial. And here's a list of the things that were violated with Jesus, but were against their, their rules and laws. A prisoner could not be forced to testify against himself. Jesus was forced to testify against himself. A person is innocent until proven guilty. Jesus was presumed guilty from the word go. A criminal cannot be tried on a feast day. This was the time of the Passover. It was against the rules to try someone on a feast day, and this is happening at the time of the Passover. 
A trial cannot take place in the house of the high priest. This trial is taking place in the house of the high priest. Just imagine that for a minute. If you get pulled over by a cop, cop arrests you, and you go, he like knows the judge personally, and he says, we're going down to judge so-and-so's house. And you go to the judge so-and-so's house, and the judge is like, you know, in his underwear, in his robe, he's kind of like getting out of bed, and he's like, all right, we can do this right here, all right? Just, we're going to have the trial right here and now. And he pronounces you guilty or hands you over to someone else who will pronounce you guilty. I mean, you'd be thinking to yourself, like, this does not feel right, right? Like, this is not the way it's supposed to go. And yet, this is kind of how it went down with Jesus. Witnesses had to be brought in and cross-examined. This did not happen with Jesus. The court had to prove guilt rather than the defendant proving innocent innocence. There is not one trial that happens in the U.S. where someone could have the most heinous criminal record, they could admit openly and say, yes, I killed 45 people, and yet when they go to trial, they are presumed innocent until they are proven guilty. The court bears the burden of proof. In the case of Jesus, that was not the case. Jesus was being asked to prove his innocence. He was not presumed innocent. He was presumed guilty. Then lastly, there was to be no striking of the prisoner. As you know, you know how that went for Jesus. There was a lot of striking of the prisoner and eventually his death. And so all of these things were violated at the trial of Jesus. Look with me at verse uh, 28. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Now watch this. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now watch this. So these men, the rule was you can't go into the house of a Gentile before Passover, or else you'll, you'll defile yourself, and you can't eat Passover, a, 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 Jewish, uh, a Jewish law. So they are worried about following the Jewish law when it comes to Passover, but not so much when it comes to trial, the trial of Jesus, right? And what you see here is one of the, um, epitomes of hypocrisy is when people have selective rule following, when, when they'll follow this rule to the T, but they have no issue, no problem violating a whole list of other rules and laws, right? That is one of the red flags of hypocrisy. If you're looking for it, that's what you should look for in your own life, someone else's life possibly, but preferably look at your own life first, right? And so, um, but that, that's what you should look for is selective rule following, right? They're willing to forego all the rules of a trial, but they're going to focus on, oh, we can't, we can't go into the house of, of, the, uh, of, this, of this Roman guy because then we can't eat Passover. Do you see the, the, the craziness, the insanity here? Look at verse 29. It says, so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So they're basically, the response is, okay, so we arrested him. So obviously he did something wrong. So imagine the scenario where you get pulled over by a cop. Cop arrests you. And it's time to go before the judge eventually. And the cop just says, I arrested him. Obviously he's guilty. So let's take him to jail. Once again, you'd be like, that's not the way trials are supposed to happen, right? This is not a fair situation. Look, look at verse 31. It says, Pilate said to them, 
Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Once again, they're worried about laws again. Here, but not elsewhere, okay? 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the Jews live under two judicial systems. They live under the Roman system, which is kind of the umbrella over the whole thing. But the Romans allowed the Jews to officiate some of their own trials and, and, and judgings on and, and, and crimes and so on. So the, um, the Jewish court is called the Sanhedrin, which is like a religious court. And they could also try religious issues. If someone commits blasphemy or something like that, they could try that in the Sanhedrin. And the Romans would let them do that sort of thing under their rules and laws. And so the Jews are not allowed to put anyone to death without Rome's approval. So they had to make it seem to Rome like Jesus committed a crime against Rome. So they can then justify them themselves putting him to death. They had to get Rome's approval to put him to death eventually. This is why they accused him of saying that he's king of the Jews, which would be a political opposition to Caesar. And if they could make it seem like he committed that crime of treason, then um, it'd be easier to get their approval to put him to death. Look down with me at verse 33. It says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Look at verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So Pilate's job is to find out the truth. His job is to find out if Jesus is guilty or innocent. And so I think his question of what is truth is a little bit of a different different question then what is the truth, right? It's not like he's just saying that, okay, what is the truth about you, Jesus? It's like he's asking a bigger question when he says this, this phrase, what is truth? It's like he's saying, you speak of the truth. I don't even have a category for that. I don't even know what you're referring to when you say, when you speak of truth. You know, in, in our culture, we have the same issues that people um, often don't have a category for truth. They'll, if you say to them, you know, what's truth? They'll say, I don't know. It's whatever you make of it. It's whatever you want to be true. That's true for you. It's not true for me, but it's true for you. Or people who are scientists will say things like, people who are scientists that maybe aren't believers will say things like, truth is whatever you can see and touch. Truth is what can be proven. That's truth. Or a philosopher might say, truth is relative. We can't know anything with certainty. Or individuals say things like, Truth's whatever you make of it. Truth is relative. It's whatever you think it is. That can be your truth. You can live by that truth, and that can, that can define your life. And most of us, I think, uh, if I were to say to you, what is the truth, most of us would say things like, well, it's, it's like a truth is like it's a proposition or a statement. It's, 
It's a, if you say this statement, is that statement true? And I understand what you're saying when you say that. But Jesus, in the, in the, in the book of John, Jesus is portrayed as the truth. The truth is a person. It's not just a statement. It is a person. Truth is personified in Jesus. And so John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. These are Jesus' words. And so just watch this. Here's Pilate staring truth right in the eyes, and he asks, what is truth? Just look at that. Think of that picture for a second. He's looking truth right in the eyes, and he asks the question, what is truth? The truth about Jesus is that he is the truth. The truth about him is that he is, he is truth personified. Truth is not just a statement or a proposition. Truth is a person, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. This should give hope to all the skeptics in the world, I think, that um, your, your mission, if you're a skeptic or a cynic, your mission should not just be to find the statements or propositions in the world that make sense to you, but you should look at Jesus and, and take your skepticism and cynicism to him and lay that at the foot of the cross and learn how to trust in him, the person who is the truth, the person who is Jesus. Go ahead and do your first uh, four questions at your table. Questions one through four. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, I know you're not done yet, but you never are done, and neither am I. So um, we've got to look at the next verse here. So we're going to pick up in John chapter 19, verse, uh, verse 16. But I wanna, I'm going to finish off by reading the rest of verse 38 first. It says, after he had said this, so after Jesus completes this statement, it says, um, he went back outside to the Jews, Pilate, this is Pilate he's talking about, to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now skip all the way down to John chapter 19, verse 16. <clears throat> so we have Pilate declaring, I find no guilt in him. John chapter 19, verse 16 says, so he delivered him o- over to them to be crucified. So we have a contradiction there, don't we? Um, he's innocent, declared by Pilate to be innocent, but then he, de- he, he hands him over to the Jews to be crucified. So how do we get from I find no guilt in him over to Jesus getting crucified? Um, just imagine that happening to you or to someone in our society today. A newspaper headline might read, man found not guilty, but his execution will be next week. It doesn't make any sense, right? It's a contradiction. And so why does Pilate do this when he thinks Jesus is innocent? Here's why he does it. Pilate felt pressure from the Jews because he felt like if I don't hand Jesus over to them, there's going to be an uprising. Pilate's job working for the Roman government was to keep the people calm. Do whatever it takes to keep them calm, right? If that means occasionally handing over a prisoner to them to do with him what they will, then so be it. As long as the people don't rise up against me and try to take their anger out on me as their governor. And so... He was afraid of what they might do, so he fears man more than he fears God, and because of that, he hands Jesus over to them to be crucified. In verses uh, 17 and 18, we see because of his decision, Jesus is crucified. Actually, let me finish reading here in uh, um, verse 16. Here's what it says. Did I already read this passage? I'm like drawing blanks here. 
verses, uh, look at John 19, uh, 16 to 20. Did I already read that? I did not read it yet. Okay, good. It's the, the cold medicine is, is talking right now. So, okay, John 19, verse 16, it says, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And so um, crucifixion was a horrible, horrible way to die. It was probably the most, if they tried, they, they, they invented crucifixion because they were trying to make death painful, as painful as possible. In our culture, if we have to execute someone, we say, let's try to make it as humane as possible and as painless as possible. Back then, it was the opposite. It was make it as painful as possible and as inhumane as possible. And so <clears throat> the Roman philosopher Cicero said uh, crucifixion was the cruelest and most horrifying death possible. In fact, it was so horrible <clears throat> that Romans almost never crucified a Roman citizen. It was reserved for slaves and lower-class people. In our day, ex execution is fairly a private thing. But in that day, crucifixion was public. Imagine here in Temple, if we still crucified, putting them up at the, at the um, entrance of Temple on I-35. That would be the equivalent of, of public execution back then, making sure everyone sees that we don't take crime lightly. Um, if you think about some of the worst criminals in our country, uh, some of the worst serial killers, um, the, the, two, the top two, they got a better trial and a, a cleaner execution than Jesus did. So the first guy I want to show you is, uh, this guy is a guy named Gary Ridgeway, but his, his sort of nickname is the Green River Killer in Seattle. And this guy killed 71 women, all right, in the time in the 70s. Um, he, ex he targeted uh, women exclusively, and he was suspected of killing over 90 people, but he confessed to 71, convicted of 49 murders, okay? This guy got a more fair, look at, just look at the guy for a second. Looks like a normal guy, right? Serial killers always do. Beware, beware. You're like, no, here's the deal, is that after you know he's a killer, you're like, yeah, he looks weird. He looks weird, right? But if you saw him on the street, you wouldn't be like, he looks like a serial killer, right? You wouldn't think that. So um, looks fairly normal, and yet um, this guy got a more fair trial and a cleaner execution than Jesus did. The next guy is pretty famous. His name, his name is Ted Bundy, and he was uh, <clears throat> he was um, con he confessed to killing thirty five to thirty six women before the other ones that he actually got convicted for. Okay, and so some people estimate upwards of a hundred people that he killed in his life. Um, he escaped from prison twice, murdered multiple victims in one day sometimes. Um, so these are some really, really bad dudes we're talking about. And yet, in spite of the fact, listen, 
In spite of that fact, these, both these guys got more fair trials and cleaner executions than what Jesus got. And here's the interesting thing about this. Listen, is that Jesus, he died the most brutal, agonizing, horrific death imaginable. You can go to the next slide. I don't want this guy looking at people in the, in the crowd, right? It's going to be kind of awkward. You're like captured by, you're like, oh, it's, the guy's freaking me out. So um, he died the death of one of the low, lowliest of criminals in that society. And here's why he died that kind of death. Listen, he died like a criminal and between two criminals because he was dying for criminals, criminals like me and you. In a sense, all of us are criminals, right? All of us are cosmic criminals. All of us have violated the holiness of God. All of us stand before God as criminals before a holy God. And so each one of us is a criminal against him and his holiness. And in that day, at the top of someone's cross, they would put a sign with their crime listed on that sign. And Jesus, all that could be put on his sign was the fact that he was Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And one of the things interesting is that Pilate wrote that or had that written and puts it on the cross. And then the chief priests are the ones that come to him and say, can, can you just rephrase that a little bit? Don't say he was king of the Jews, but say that he said he was king of the Jews. And I think Pilate he says, what I have written, I have written because Pilate, I think, knew he was innocent. Now, I'm not saying that Pilate was a Christian or that he became a Christian, but I do think he was saying he was innocent and he believed that he was innocent, and his only crime was just being God. His only crime was just being the king of the Jews. And so what's listed on, on their cross is their, their crimes, but because there was nothing to put on his cross that day, on that sign, instead, Colossians tells us that our record of debt, that we, our record of debt, was nailed on the cross with him. Just think about that for a second. So Jesus didn't had anything wrong to deserve death in this way, and so it just said, King of the Jews. But our record of debt, according to Colossians, it says was nailed to the cross that day. And so when you think about this, the cross begins to take on such a deeper and different meaning than what most of us tend to think of it um, in that sense. And so um, I want you to understand this morning that when, when, when our crimes are nailed to the cross of Jesus, this is a big word for you to know, but I want you to know it. It's called imputation. And what that means is that my sin has been imputed to Christ. My sin has been placed on him. Your sin has been placed on him. It's called imputation. There's also another imputation that happens, and it's his righteousness being imputed to me. It's called the great exchange. My sin is placed on him. His righteousness is placed upon me. And God sees you when you put, put your faith and trust in him. He sees you as righteous. I'm saying this because I know that if we say things like, hey, if someone says, can you explain the cross to me, why the cross was necessary, I want you to be able to explain it to people and understand this is why Jesus had to die. He was killed like a criminal between two criminals, and he died for criminals like me and you. And you may not like me calling us a criminal, but essentially we are. That's, that's who we are. We, we are. we are cosmic criminals that have violated God's holiness. Look at um, verse 28 of this chapter. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. 
So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I think at times we become, we kind of become numb to the cross because we just are so familiar with the story. But I'll take you back again just to this uh, courtroom scene where um, I wasn't there when they pronounced Kevin not guilty, but I was outside the courthouse after they pronounced him not guilty. And when Kevin came out of the courthouse, um, he, he grabbed me and just wept because here's a guy who's 19, 20 years old, and he's been told, um, you're going to get your life back, and you're not guilty, at least according to the, when it comes to this crime. And he's just weeping and just so joyful and happy. And I drove home thinking about, you know, it's amazing how he would have gone to jail for a few years had he been found guilty, which is a horrible, horrible thing. And it's great to hear the news that you're not going to jail. That's great to hear that news. But how much greater, listen, how much greater is it to hear the verdict of not guilty in God's court, in the divine court, to know that you are declared by him righteous. You are declared not guilty by God. And I want to encourage you this morning, I'm, I'm going to finish up here real quick, that if you've never put your faith and trust in him and Christ alone and his finished work on the cross for you, you can put your faith and trust in him for you today and his finished work on the cross today knowing what the cross has bought us, that he has bought you with the cross, that your sin has, has been put on him, his righteousness has been put onto you, imputed to you, and given to you. And I want to encourage you, if you're, if you're one of those people that's a, a skeptic and a cynic, and you've not put your faith and trust in him, and you aren't counting on him for your righteousness instead of your own works, then put your faith and trust in him today. I want to encourage you to do that today. Go ahead and finish with your last few questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.